You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. Perhaps you've seen before those, those laminated cards. Maybe you found them in a Christian bookstore or in a hotel room. But it it's, looks like this. It's got two columns, and on the left side, you have various life situations. When you worry, when you feel alone, when you struggle with temptation. And on the right side, it has a Bible verse that you should look up when you're in that moment. So, for example, you might feel worried, and you read the passage. When you're worried, it directs you to 1 Peter 5, 7. And there you read, cast all your anxieties on God, because he cares for you. It's a quick, easy way to find a Bible passage that speaks to you in your situation. Because the last thing you want is to be worried and open up the Bible and and read about God striking Ananias and Sapphira dead. Or about two bears eating 42 children because they were mocking Elisha. It's much safer to open the Bible to a single verse that's been pre-selected and directed at you. And while the listing of passages, it can be comforting. And has brought many people a word from God who might otherwise be be lost when they open their Bible. The difficulty is that sometimes we never get beyond that way of reading. We reduce the Bible to a series of sayings, like fortune cookies. We open the pages and we look for it to speak one little word for us. And instead, and we never get to the reality that the Bible sets before us a story in which we find ourselves. And when we do this, we turn Christianity into something it was never meant to be. A private, personal coping mechanism. A therapeutic exercise. It becomes something that's about me and Jesus, or about me and my struggles. And God becomes, well, he becomes someone that I invite into my life to help me with my agenda. Or to help me cope with my problems. To support me when times get tough. Or to help me fulfill my dreams. And we kind of discussed this problem last week. We discussed how what this does is it turns everything on its head. Instead of us being servants in God's kingdom, God becomes a servant for our plans. Rather than us being brought into his story, we kind of fit him into ours. And the whole point of this sermon series we've been going through Romans is to turn our attention to God's story and see a few things. First, in God's story, he is the main actor, not us. God is the one who was there at the beginning creating the world from nothing, God will be there at the end, recreating the world. In the beginning, God speaks, and we meet God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, active throughout the whole story. We meet God in Christ, ruling over the ruins of this present world. And today, we're going to turn our focus. We're going to turn our focus from what God is doing as the main actor in the story to God's people that God creates through his activity. So we're going to focus on God's greater people. Now it's true that God is present for each individual person. It's true that those Bible passages that you read do relate to you and they can embrace you. But God's vision is so much greater than that. For God has come in Jesus Christ not to help us cope, but to raise us from the dead. Not to help us get along with ourselves or fulfill our dreams, but to reshape in us 
his dreams. Now, as we listen to the text this morning, you, you, you might have realized we've come across Paul in a, in a rather personal moment. He's engaged in intense and personal prayer. And you might know this moment from your own experience. It's the moment of prayer when you are praying for someone that you love who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, who does, just doesn't care, or, or worse, is actively opposed to the gospel. Now, you know that God loves this person, and so you're praying for them. You know that God desires this person to be saved. And so you stand there praying alone. Alone, not because God has left you, but alone because your mother or your brother or your cousin is not there with you, praying to the same God. And this is a painful experience. And you can hear it in Paul's verse, in voice. In in verse 1, he cries out, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears with me in the Holy Spirit. But I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is talking here about his Jewish family, his, his people, the brothers and sisters who were raised in the faith of the Old Testament. And five years earlier, the Jewish community had been expelled from Rome. This is the context of this letter. Five years earlier, before this letter, the Jewish community had been expelled from Rome, and now they were allowed to return. And in the meantime, those five years, the church had become shaped by the only ones who were left, the Gentile believers. And so the question was, how would the church receive the Jewish community, and how would the Jewish community re-enter this church? What began as a movement of faith among Jews had increasingly become shaped by the Gentile culture. And Paul was worried, not just about the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus, but also about the Gentiles who may not really find any reason to care about them. Now, earlier in the letter, Paul asked a very important question. As he was building his argument to show that all had fallen short of the glory of God, he had shown how the Gentiles were apart from God, trapped in idolatry. He had shown how the the, the Jewish people who had the law fell short of it and found themselves condemned as well. And so he asked this question, then what advantage has the Jew? And we would normally expect, if we just read that question, well, well none, right? We're all sinners. We're all, all are sinful and all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? But that's not what Paul says. In chapter 3, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he begins this this list of what benefit the, the Jewish people have by being the ones to whom God spoke, by being called God's people. And he picks up this list again, listing more benefits of being part of the Jewish community. In Romans 9, in our text today, verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And notice that Paul reaches for the whole story. This prayer is not about Paul. It's not even about the individuals that he has on his mind. It's about God's people and their place in God's story. God chose Abraham and his descendants to be the father, Abraham to be the father through whom the, this Christ would be born. And from Abraham and his descendants comes the one who will fix and save the world. 
Because God's story, Paul knows, has always been God working through his people. And notice that he's willing to die for these people. Right? He, he wishes something that, that, that became kind of prominent in deep medieval piety, but that is the desire to suffer hell in place of someone else. Paul wishes that he would be cut off for the sake of his brothers. He knows that many of his Jewish brothers have not believed. And he knows that it would be easy for the Christian church just to turn their back on them and say they missed the chance. And yet the people of Israel are so important to him that he wishes they could, they could take his place. That's a Christ-shaped desire. A Christ-shaped desire. For Christ is the one who came and was willing to be cut off, to suffer condemnation for the sake of his enemies, that they might be received. Christ is the one who came and gave his life for the sake of another. And through him, through him, through his faith in him, Paul is being formed into that same image of Christ that wishes that he could be cut off for the sake of another. That's how deep Paul's prayer runs, how deep his desire runs. He's living by a promise, a promise that God works through his people, a promise that God is going to complete the work he began in his people. So how does this work for us today? Well, consider how important it is to be part of this corporate people for Paul. This is what we lose sight of when we take the Bible into a bunch of small little verses, when we think it's about us individually. Faith becomes a personal matter and we lose sight of the fact that we are part of a community of God's people. But faith has awakened us to the fact that we are never alone. We are brought into the body of Christ. And this body is an ancient people. It is the people of promise. It is the people of Israel. And we, this is a hard thing for us as, as Lutheran Christians. We, we're more at home in the New Testament than we are in the Old. And there's a story actually about this that I think illustrates this really well. There's a Lutheran pastor who went on a, a missions trip to Israel. And he was working with uh, a local believer named Badil uh, to, to engage uh, people in, in Israel. And they were talking one day with a Jewish woman who did not believe in Christ. And the woman asked Badil a simple question. You've probably heard this question before. After all, you have your Bible, and you have Jesus, and I have my Bible, and I have my God. Why do I need to believe in your Jesus? Why can't we both just believe in God and go, go our own way? And Bodil, this Israeli believer, looked at the woman and said, If my Jesus isn't your Messiah, then I don't want him. Your scriptures are my scriptures, and your God is my God. And if Jesus is not your Messiah, then I don't want him. And I will wait with you for the one God promised. And this answer shocked the Lutheran pastor who was listening. Because he had always seen the Old Testament scriptures as like a, a grab bag of proof texts to show how Jesus was God. When he thought about the Old Testament, he would think about Isaiah 9. To us a child is born. Or Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But when it came down to it, he didn't see himself as part of that story. That was someone else's story that related to his. It was helpful for pointing to Jesus, but he didn't see himself as part of Israel. He didn't see his commitment as prior to that Old Testament. And so he was startled by Badil's answer 
that these Old Testament scriptures were her scriptures. And if they didn't point to Jesus, then he would need to give up on Jesus. If Jesus doesn't fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, if he isn't the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, then we should give up on him and wait for another. And while the woman Badil talked to didn't come to faith that day, the pastor who overheard her came to a deeper faith. He began to see that God had brought him into a much larger, more ancient story. The story of the people of Israel, the story of the promise. For the God who created all things created this people by rescuing them from slavery. And to them he gave his promises. He sent his prophets. And now this pastor realized he was a part of them. The prophets were not simply proof texts to be read and mined for things about Jesus. They were telling a story that because of Jesus, he had been brought into. He had been brought into someone else's story and made part of it. That's actually what our Old Testament reading for today is all about. Isaiah 55. God calls his people to come and eat. And this is, this is much more than just a, a foretaste of, or, or, or a foretelling of the feeding of the 500. This is part of God's eternal vision for the last day. That his people will welcome to the table a new people they did not know. That's us. We've been welcomed to their table through Christ. We've been welcomed to the people of Israel's table. God points back to an everlasting promise made with David, Israel's king. He is a witness and a leader and a commander for that, for the people of Israel. And through Jesus, through the promised Messiah, Israel invites all nations to their table. And when we see this, suddenly we see ourselves as having roots that sink so much deeper. Roots that have stood through centuries and millennia. Because we are a people of promise that are continuous with the people of Abraham. So rather than opening the Bible and looking for a grab bag or little verses that relate to us, we open the Bible to find our family story, to find our history, to find some roots in this world, roots in the promises of God. There's a painting that, that illustrates this this continuity and the wholeness of the story. It's in your bulletin. I put it up. It's um, in your bulletin underneath the sermon. It used to actually be under the altar in Siena. It was one of five paintings at the bottom of the altarpiece, and you'd only see it when you came forward for communion. And you could see this, this small painting as a, the moment when God is working in the world. It's a painting of the Annunciation, which is the moment when, when Mary is sitting alone, and Gabriel comes to her and announces the news that she had been chosen to bear the Savior. Mary is seated alone in a room, and before her angel comes Gabriel bearing this message of God. And if you look closely, you can see that the scene is kind of weird. It's not a realistic scene. Because if you look outside the door, you find a garden. A garden from which two naked people are walking. Because that is the Garden of Eden. The portrait of what's going on outside Mary's room reaches all the way back to the beginning of the story where Adam and Eve are being banished from the garden by God. Because they have just rebelled, they've just brought God's curse on all creation, and now they are subject to death and sin, like all humanity. But when you see the original painting, if you follow God's arm that is banishing them from the garden, it actually points directly 
to the Virgin Mary sitting in this room. It's the artist's way of representing the fact that when God sent them out of the garden, banishing them from the place of his presence, he sent them with a promise. The promise that there would come a day when an offspring of Eve would bruise the head of Satan and rescue his people from sin. And Adam and Eve and all who lived after them, according to this promise, are the people of God. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, David and Solomon, Isaiah and Malachi, Matthew and Mark and Martin and you are people of promise. And now in this, well, I was going to say in this room, we're not really in a room. On this day, God speaks to you his promise that in Jesus Christ you are part of his people and you are welcome at his table. Just as he spoke to Mary and promised her that she was part of God's story. And so, our word as a people of faith is the same word as Mary's. Let it be to me according to your word. That's the response of the people of promise. Let it be to me according to your word. That's the word that submits ourselves to God's story and finds our place in his promise. And it's the same word we speak this day when we come to this altar. And once again, Jesus, who through whom we are invited to the table of Israel, comes and says, I am here for you. This is my body for you. For the forgiveness of your sins, for life, for deliverance from evil. And so we respond just like Mary, just like all the people of promise. Let it be to me according to your word. Amen. And may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.